0: World War II heightened every emotion. Not only did anxiety and uncertainty reach new levels, but so did promiscuity and disregard for societal norms. In the darkness of the Blitz, the UK saw a spike in crime that strained the thin police force. Looting and assaults became more commonplace as the bombing runs disguised misdeeds. But one man was more interested in a darker type of criminal activity. He used the blackouts as a way to hide a spree of murders that would be likened to one of the most famous serial killers ever. He's known as the Blackout Ripper.
1: It seem like that should be a drop for a song.
0: The Blackout Ripper is actually a killer the DJ. Blackout name. Ripper. <laughs> stab, indie, stab, sap, stab, sap, stab, sap, sap. It'd be a perfect Halloween song. You have the mixing capabilities. I
1: used to, I used to make beats. We could figure it out, right? Beat could. That, 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 that was nothing. That was nothing. That was nothing. I'm not even going to give you that one. No, it's,
0: it's, <laughs> that's fair. So it was don't funny. deserve it. When you
1: were gone, I was like trying to figure out what I wanted to do for like the week that I did mm. my, the solo episode, which was last week. And initially, I was like, hmm, maybe I'll do some like famous kidnappings. And then I figured out that I was just going to be talking a lot about like dead kids and child brides, and I didn't think that was really what I wanted to get into that week.
0: You know what? That that is a bummer. (laughs) So I did something else. That would be quite the bummer. Like, you know what? We're going to talk about dead kids.
1: Especially when I'm by myself, and it's just like... Nice. This is, this is what I'm
0: dedicating my week to, huh? Yeah. Or you just talk about the Lindbergh baby. Yeah, exactly. Which, again, dead, dead kids. Dead kids.
1: <laughs> none, none of it really seemed like a good time to me. It's a hard sell. It's a, it's a really hard sell.
0: <laughs> Not that this topic is any better, but yeah.
1: I mean, yeah, dead but, but now we're doing it together. And hey, this guy's someone that we can just make fun of. So mm-hmm. that's that is the fun true. part.
0: Speaking of people you can
1: make fun of, welcome to the Gems of History Podcast. Hey yo
0: oh, sure can. Evan's but back this don't. week. We're fragile. Yeah, <laughs> that's don't. true.
1: Uh, Evan's back this week. I'm your other host, Jacob Shop. As always. Evan, how are you? We're doing good. We're doing it. Happy to be back. Happy belated on. birthday. Oh yeah. Thank you. How how was your time away how was your trip it
0: was give me f- all of the deets fantastic the fiance and i went to tennessee to go check out the wedding venue and make sure that's real and that it exists and it wasn't just pictures <laughs> uh the place is absolutely gorgeous we cannot wait to get married there so we're very excited also learned quite a bit about uh the surrounding area it's in the middle of nowhere <laughs> so we had it to kind of
1: looked like it from the videos you posted yeah
0: so we had to move like the hotel um to a place where there are things to do okay. for people who are making it a trip but all in all it was good had a fun time in nashville tennessee again um where we spent just a night but yeah it was all in all you can't can't beat tennessee it is i mean a great state it's
1: a good thing that you went though because now you know that you have to move all that stuff so yeah if we probably a good
0: thing if we didn't if we just played it by ear like you know what (laughs) we'll figure it out when we get there that would have stuck
1: you just did like the predator handshake with your wedding planner down there and you're like i
0: trust you (laughs) pretty much pretty much you're not wrong yeah
1: yeah i also uh i did enjoy that i asked you for a picture for in the instagram for your birthday (laughs) post and you just sent me a picture where you are the most blurry possible Damn it! <laughs> it's just a picture of a cannon. A yeah. <laughs> but I was like, yeah. "Hey, he told me to post this." All right? So if anyone well, asked. When you
0: texted, that was literally we were like parking for, like the the national park that we went to, uh, in, right outside of Chattanooga, and it could not be more better timed. If that makes sense. Sure. It was so fun, <laughs> Elia. I was literally like, we were pulling up to the to the parking lot. It's like, oh, there's just a whole cannon here. <laughs> Look, I just got a text. But um, it was Lookout Mountain. Okay. Uh, so the story, just basically cover it very quick. Uh, Lookout Mountain is a pretty notorious battle of the Civil War uh, right outside of Chattanooga, where the, it was part of... Um, Grant's March. Okay. Uh, so it was really cool. Wow, I mean, I don't, I don't have enough of the details to really do it justice to, to talk about it, but very, very interesting battle. Um, maybe, a, maybe a future episode.
1: I mean, that is what we do here, isn't it?
0: Mm-hmm. So I guess you <laughs> can probably do that. Yeah.
1: But I'm glad to hear you had fun. I'm glad to have you back, though.
0: Yeah. So Yeah, we're here.
1: And today we're talking not about American things, we're talking about British things. Very or, British things. Or
0: beans and chips, mate. <laughs>
1: yes, exactly.
0: Uh we're talking about a serial killer though. So
1: <laughs> not as fun. <laughs> not as fun. A serial it's... killer during World War 2, during the worst bombing run of World War 2 in London at least. So
0: did, did anyone have the misery bingo go off there, three in a row? <laughs> <laughs>
1: and and here we are. We're like it's October. We got to do something scary. Spooky. So we just talk about a bunch of people dying. <laughs> we just talk about the British. <laughs> <laughs> Get to a dentist, sir. Oh my God. Um, yeah. So today, if you didn't look at the title or didn't listen during the intro read, we're going to be talking about the Blackout Ripper. Uh, it's a, if you don't know who that is, as I'm assuming most of you don't, it is a man named Gordon Frederick Cummins, and he is a British spree killer or serial killer, depending on who you ask. Um the difference, if you don't know, serial killers usually are a longer ex- extended period of time. They have like a cool off period in between when they kill people. And spree killers are pretty much back to back days almost or within like a couple weeks of each other. You do multiple murders. So that's the difference. A supernova, if you will. <laughs> yeah. Burn,
0: burn bright, tie fast.
1: And. They're both different from mass murderers, which is just a one day thing, like one event versus mm-hmm. like multiple. So he's, I would call him a spree killer, if anything, but Agreed. it depends on if you believe that he had killed like the prior year to what he's known for and stuff like that. So there's a lot that you could probably attribute to him if you want, but we'll get into all that as we go. We're not going to talk about the supposed murders, we're going to just focus on the. The canonical ones. I guess I'm you only going
0: to be able to think about the TikTok slash Instagram reels of he was the best guy around. <laughs> Have you seen those ones? No. <laughs> what about all the murder he did? What murder? murder. <laughs> I think it's like, I think it might be two UK guys. It is, <laughs> the, cla- it.
1: It is like the classic though for every serial killer. It's like he was a staple of the community. <laughs> Until he wasn't.
0: Until he put things where they don't belong. And then
1: he stapled the community. Ugh. So, yeah, uh, we'll be talking all about this guy today. He is very interesting, honestly. I, as Evan mentioned when we were talking about this before we started recording, the word psychopath is very apt to describe this guy.
0: I, mean, I think we've talked about it or mentioned it every single time we've done a serial killer, but our brains just straight up can't can't wrap around the actions that these people that these people do just there's no logical explanation yeah to it other than you know they're they're psychopaths and it is
1: like he gets compared to jack the ripper obviously by the name but i think out of like the people that i know that have been compared or have gotten the ripper moniker associated with them i think he's probably the closest analog we can give Mm -hmm. to jack the ripper because he did it in such a short time there's one night where he kills two people like both of the things that jack ripper jack the ripper did and it's just kind of eerie how similar some of the stuff is that he does but we know who he is so right yeah got caught this one not as good not not as good as jack the ripper granted He also did it like 70 years later, or not 70, like, yeah, around 70. Right, right around there. Right and right. they had a lot better stuff to use to catch him. So. Dude,
0: shout out fingerprints. Yeah. Like, that was a huge part of catching him. So,
1: yeah, today is going to be quite, if you didn't know, we're going to get pretty gruesome. So, mm. if you don't like the, the gruesome stuff, then maybe this isn't the episode to listen to. Go yes. back and listen to some, something else, maybe.
0: Very gross, Pretty disgusting. Yeah. If you don't want to listen to that, I would not do this one or listen to this one.
1: And obvious, but still give us five stars. <laughs> i used trigger warnings for like domestic assault and all that stuff. So mm-hmm. just be prepared for that. Shall we? We shall. So London has been a violent and dark place for years before World War II came around. And obviously, as we mentioned, stories like Jack the Ripper emphasize kind of the seedy underside of the city. But it's hard for us to really imagine what London was really like to live in during the early days of World War Two, because uh, we haven't lived through World War Two, most of us, at least, unless you're one of the I don't. Is there still World War Two vets still alive around there?
0: They're far and few. Yeah. That's true. That's
1: If you are the one of those far and few, yeah. <laughs> listen to us. Thank
0: you. Isn't that kind of crazy? Like, World War Two was only not really that long ago. 80 years, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so uh, we don't really
1: know what it was like to live, especially during the Blitz, in, in a city like London. Because each and every citizen pretty much had no idea whether they were just going to live their day normally or... Die that same day,
0: right? Your day was based around loud sirens, yeah, letting you know that you're about to get a devastating bomb dropped And,
1: and we have war today, obviously. We mm. have like what's going on in Ukraine. It's terrifying as well. But I think the blitz is just a completely different thing altogether because we had nobody had really experienced air bombing raids like that before.
0: Yeah, it was the first war that air bombing was really used and featured quite often. In yeah, just about every day.
1: So con- those constant bombing runs from the German Luftwaffe forced the public of London to live in the dark literally. They had blackouts that enforced were enforced citywide for industrial sites, businesses, residential homes, pretty much any building had to maintain a certain level of darkness or lack of light above or below and above a certain height in the city. Uh, the numbers of dead and the homeless in the city began to steadily climb into the thousands, then tens of thousands, and eventually hundreds of thousands, especially for the homeless side of it. At the end of it, there is an estimated 40,000 dead in London alone, and around a quarter of a million people were left
0: homeless. Yeah, there's uh, not too much insurance that can happen during wartime. You no, know, people really don't get uh, get their houses back built your, fast, and your the entire, boys are off fighting. So,
1: and your entire building is just gone. Right. So I, right.
0: What are you going to do? Yeah, there's a crater where your bathtub was.
1: And this kind of hit the poorer parts of the city, especially because they were left with fewer shelters, and they kind of were forced to literally go underground. And they used the London subway stations as shelters during the bombings, despite police initially saying, "Don't do that."
0: Right. Right. And I mean the Luftwaffe, they're In the German bombing strategy, I believe we covered it when we did the bomber mafia, like they were just, we will destroy every part of the city. They weren't targeting strategic locations. They weren't targeting manufacturing operations. They were targeting the people's morale.
1: Yeah, and Germany had a very keen sense Mm. of how to kind of... Strategize around blackouts because they were the first ones to implement it, and they did Mm -hmm. like practice runs and stuff because they knew that this type of thing was going to happen ahead of time because they started the war. Right, right. So they had very strict curfews. They had very strict rules. If you were caught outside, you might get a warning the first time if you're lucky, but otherwise you might get sent to a concentration camp. So they took it very seriously. And so obviously you can use those measures and flip them on their head to use against an enemy, but. Once the uh, poor people were starting to funnel into these subway stations, these tube stations, uh, around 100,000 to 150,000 people at any given time might be found in those stations and at night. And so these shel- subways and tube shelters began to kind of run themselves as organized little colonies. The people put in their own systems of ruling with committees and conferences to discuss issues and make decisions. And in a way, it was kind of the first time that the working class of London was able to show itself to the upper class and the middle classes, because there was a huge gap between the classes, I guess you could call them. The upper classes really just looked down on everyone else as way worse. Unions began to form, if you will. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. So interclass solidarity kind of began to rise all across the nation, but... While some of them were trying to make the best of a bad situation, others were looking to take advantage of the absence of all of these people. Making a bad situation worse. From 1939 to 1945, crime rates in London specifically rose over 50%. Looting was a massive issue. Criminals began to kind of find out that they could break windows or blow safes without consequence because bombings are a pretty good way to cover that up. Right. Right. Things got so bad that looting actually became a capital offense, and Ooh. all of the law enforcement pretty openly encouraged you to shoot anyone that you found in the act of looting. So oh it was a, taken very seriously.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a dick move to, to loot. Yeah, to <laughs> all of this.
1: And I mean, with the police force spread as thin as it already was, with so many of them, like the men were just gone. Mm-hmm. So for the ones that were left, severely understaffed a lot of them were like not the best of the best anymore so they just kind of were like if you catch them just take them out
0: i'm picturing and this is obviously just a joke uh but i'm just picturing every single cop is like the old cop in um not training day the one with mel gibson i'm blanking the, I'm too old for this shit. <laughs> Why am I blanking too? <laughs> lethal weapon? Lethal weapon. Yeah. I was, I, when you were going into that, I was
1: going to say, I just think of it as like hot fuzz. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like one of those
0: movies. I'm too old for this, but yeah, pork and beans. <laughs> pretty much everyone's too old for this shit. Yeah.
1: As the war got into full force, the UK had to deal with higher instances of gun crimes, likely higher than ever before in the country's history. As the servicemen began to come back to the cities on leave, they would keep their rifles with them. And in addition, the policemen that were still in the cities were given rifles to help crack down on the rampant crime, like the looting. So with that, there's instances of disgruntled servicemen returning home to maybe find their girlfriends or their wives in bed with other men, flying into a rage and opening fire with those weapons. Uh, There's one story that tells of a student at Oxford University who got hold of a gun and pretty much just shot into a crowd on the quad and killed one person and injured another. So, in effect, gun crimes rose because there were simply more guns around at all times, which, good thing we don't know about that. Can't relate. Uh, Move on. yeah. (laughs) Can't relate. One gun crime that kind of captured the country's attention was the so-called cleft chin murder. So... The reason it's called the cleft chin murder is because the victim had a cleft chin, and that's just what the press decided to call
0: it. Very descriptive people, I guess. So
1: I'm just going to go into the story a little bit to give an example of kind of the heightened tensions and the more freewheeling crime that was going on in London at the time. So Carl Halton was a Swedish-born American who enlisted in the U.S. Army following Pearl Harbor. He was eventually sent to England to take part in D-Day, but decided he didn't want to do that, so he just deserted. And when he left, he decided he was going to steal a military truck. Oh. Afterwards, he paraded around town telling stories about being a military officer and a former Chicago gangster. One woman... (laughs) <laughs> how, how do those are okay he was like back when I was back in the states I was a, in the in the gangs Chicago with the mobsters you know Al
0: Capone a bitch he's my dad <laughs>
1: <laughs> but one woman named Elizabeth Jones fell for his ruse uh, she herself kind of had a bit of a rough life she was devastated when her father left for the war and then she was sent away by her mother at the age of 13 for private school just because her mother didn't want to deal with her She left school at 16, married an abusive man, and then left him and decided to chase her dream of being a dancer on her own. So when she met Halton, it was kind of a perfect marriage of chaos and like nowhere else to go, really. Mm -hmm. The night that they met, Jones told Halton that she wanted to do something exciting. So they picked up a hitchhiking woman, knocked her unconscious, robbed her, and threw her into a
0: river. As you do. Boys being boys? That's... It's kind of a couple being a couple in this case, because it was her, but, but it was they were boys. True, <laughs> it was her idea
1: though. So, <laughs> girls being girls. Thankfully, the woman, the hitchhiker, survived. The next day, the uh, the two tried to rob a taxi. But when they stopped the taxi with Halton's stolen army truck, there was a U.S. soldier in the backseat of the taxi who brandished his weapon back at Halton when he produced his. Oh, a real standoff. Oh, for 2. The crime couple then abandoned that plan, and shortly after, they knocked out a woman on a
0: bike and robbed her. All right. They're <laughs> kind of... I hate this. This isn't Bonnie and Clyde. This isn't romantic. This is just... Hey, look at this... Dweeb on a bike. keep in mind this is all happening in like the span of three days but on october 6th
1: 1944 halton and jones committed their biggest crime they hailed another taxi driven by a man named george edward heath he had formerly been honorably discharged from the war after being injured at dunkirk and he resorted to driving taxi to kind of make ends meet and support his family Halton and Jones asked Heath to stop the cab, and after he stopped, they abruptly shot him in the head. They took his taxi, dropped Heath's body into a ditch, and then left it there, and got a total of eight pounds from their robbery.
0: Like, is it worth it? No. (laughs) Like, eight pounds to shoot someone in the head? And a car. And a car. But they had a stolen army truck. God, that sucks to survive Dunkirk and then get... Yeah, and especially he had a wife
1: and two kids at home. Like He was working as a taxi driver without telling them because he Mm. was like, I need to support them. So it it was just a very sad circumstance. Oh, very much. So instead of getting rid of the stolen taxi, the uh, crime couple decided to use it to ferry themselves around town. They attempted to steal a fur coat from a woman when they ran out of money. And when the police arrived, the couple hopped in the taxi. The police then recognized the plates from the stolen cab and tracked the two down. Halton was arrested, and Jones actually ended up turning herself in, which is kind of surprising. Uh But both of them ended up blaming each other once it got to trial, because
0: neither one wanted to admit to the crime of killing a man. Ah, there you go. That has to be the worst fight a couple could get into right <laughs> like which one killed him? well and it's funny because
1: they were both using aliases when they met so neither of them found out the other's actual name until
0: they got to court now this is just this is all the makings of a very very silly rom
1: so in the end both were found guilty and both were sentenced to death Halton's sentence was commuted on March 8th, 1945, but Jones ended up getting reprieved, and she was released in May of 1954. And after that, her fate's kind of lost to time. It, some say she died just kind of in the, in a village somewhere in 1980, but no one really knows for sure. But I read the story because it's the perfect example of the type of fast and loose lifestyles that were kind of infecting London during the mm-hmm. war years, especially because American influence were starting to seep into the British culture.
0: What did we do? <laughs> so
1: a lot of like Americanized culture was becoming the norm in Britain and a lot of these gangster movies and a lot of the fast and loose lifestyles were becoming very attractive to a lot of these young people. A lot of the
0: readily available guns.
1: Yeah, that for also use. helps. <laughs> but years before this couple made the headlines, there was another spree of crimes that was gripping London in a different fit of terror. That man's name, as we mentioned before, was Gordon Frederick Cummings, also known as the Blackout Ripper. I watched two very good documentaries on YouTube about this man, and all of them, they're all very British but they all say Cummings, but it's hm. Cummins. There's no G on it, so I don't know why they call him Cummings. For the haha's and he-he's. <laughs> but, but if you want to watch those, just look up uh, Blackout Ripper documentary. They're both from a channel called Real Crime. One of them mm. is ca- from a series called Murder Maps, and the other one is more focused on who Cummins was as a person, like his childhood, a little more about the the basis of his lifestyle, stuff like that, where the other one just focuses on the crimes and the investigation. So, on the
0: what the hell, man. <laughs>
1: yeah. So, you kind of get both aspects of it. So, I watch both of them. They both work very well together. The timelines are pretty confusing for this case, I will be honest. So, if we do, if you are familiar with this case and I get it wrong a little bit, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, every website has different timelines.
0: Right. And keep in mind, I'm sure the record keeping was maybe a little off too. As bombs.
1: Yeah. And yeah. I mean, this is it's just not a very well-known case, honestly, right. unless you're from the UK, you know about it. But I mean, he never confessed to his crimes. He was killed pretty quickly. So we don't really know a lot mm-hmm. about this guy. So Gordon Frederick Cummins, or as I have decided to call him, uh, Little Gordy C., I don't know why, but that was what I started calling him, and that's what I'm going to call him throughout the episode.
0: Is it Little or Lil?
1: Little. Ah, Little Gordy. Little Gordy C. Ooh. He was born on February 18th, 1914 in Yorkshire, England, to parents Amelia Cummins and John Cummins. His childhood is pretty unremarkable, as far as I could find. He was born into a middle-class family and enjoyed a pretty quiet upbringing. Nothing special.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's, when you look at serial killers, you always look at the childhood, what happened. Very straightforward. That's why this, people who have
1: investigated this guy, they're like, it's frustrating, because we don't know why he did any of this.
0: Maybe that's why he's not so popular, because his backstory is almost, like, too creepy, because there isn't a reason, like, yeah. a justification yeah, for the, it. Yeah,
1: it. it makes him more scary, honestly. Right. Uh, his time at school was described as unremarkable. He, his teachers reported that he was more preoccupied with socializing than he was with his studies. He did end up receiving a diploma in chemistry at a, the age of 16, but shortly afterwards abandoned his studies and kind of began a, a life of light delinquency. It's not really anything bad. It's just kind of he skipped out on school. He hopped around a lot from job to job, stuff like that.
0: But still, like... Nothing to make you think, yep, he will do atrocious things to women.
1: Right, exactly. At the age of 18, after dropping out of school, he began work at a local leather working shop. But once again, his reputation from school followed him there, because his bosses told that he would show up to work hungover regularly and show more interest in flirting with his female co-workers than getting any work done. So he got fired from a few jobs with his last boss, noting that he was quote, quite dense. (laughs) Kind of dumb. Yeah. So he, however, thought a lot higher of himself because he had quite the dreams of grandeur. But to accomplish those dreams, he knew he needed to move into the big city. So he moved to London and began a new job there. London is also where he began to let's say, reinvent himself. (laughs) Uh, Despite being unreliable, Gordy began to portray himself as the disenfranchised black sheep in a family of aristocrats. Okay, so lie. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And I mean, for us, this sounds really dumb, and it is. But you have to think about the culture of the UK, how much Mm. different it is. Like, the aristocracy- Really meant a lot, and yeah. it still does to an extent. Like if you're a part of a noble family, that carries a lot of weight, right? So, like we
0: just talked about the the non-aristocracy had to huddle ten 000 to fifteen thousand of them every night into sub one hundred to one hundred and fifty thousand. Yeah, yeah hundred to hundred fifty. So <laughs> by a ten, worse. Yeah. yeah. So it, it it's
1: it's really dumb of him to do this because obviously it's not gonna. You have nothing to back yourself up on this, right? But It makes somewhat uh, a little bit of sense, I suppose.
0: Right, right, right.
1: Uh, To accomplish this ruse, he even developed an Oxford accent, and he began to steal money to fund his new lifestyle. Just
0: changed the way he talked. Interesting.
1: (laughs) Combined with his good looks and supposed charm, Gordy was able to work his way into the various social circles that were available in London in the 1930s. And when I say good looks, like normally you watch any true crime documentary on a serial killer and you'll hear Ted Bundy was a handsome bastard. And I don't think he was at all. This guy I can actually see a case for him being handsome.
0: Like I could absolutely see it. The Ted Bundy one is probably our first disagreement. So I'm like I could see it. Like he's, he's he seems charming. Don't, it's it's the just that era of photography where I suppose I'm sure People just like look different now to us. But he was hot enough. This is very weird to say that. But he was good-looking enough to get Zac Efron to play That's true. Point Ted Bundy. (laughs) (laughs) Ron Hell.
1: (laughs) He just kind of looks like a a mechanic worker that you'll find at the bar at the end of the week. (laughs) Hey, that plays. (laughs) I mean, they do pretty well with the ladies sometimes. I guess it works. But yeah, this guy I, I would actually consider to be... One of the good-looking guys that actually works for. Uh, And he was supposedly quite charming. As we'll talk about later, he can convince women to go with him even when they're waiting for dates. So,
0: Now that's some riz. That's some charisma. That is riz. Uh,
1: He continued his ways of womanizing and flirting once he moved to London. He started living the playboy lifestyle that he wasn't able to before moving to the big city. But shockingly, little Gordy C. decided that he needed a lifestyle change, and he enlisted with the Royal Air Force in
0: November of
1: 1935, pretty much to the surprise of everyone that knew him.
0: Right, because didn't the aristocrats, that word, the aristocrats, they didn't really get drafted. Like They typically could pay their ways out.
1: They they could pay their way to officer positions and stuff like that. Officer positions, got it. Yeah, so... And I mean you could do that in a lot of places. Right. But yeah, he his parents were like, what? Yeah. You're you're doing what? The what? <laughs> you're joining the Air Force? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, apparently his lack of respect for authority had either diminished or maybe he thought that having a uniform would help him with ladies. I No one really knows why he made this decision, but...
0: I can't imagine joining the military just for help with girls. That's very funny. Yeah, I just don't know.
1: I have no other reason for him to want to join. But either way, he signed on as an aircraft rigger and tasked... And he was tasked with kind of undertaking the flight checks for the aircraft before they would leave and stuff like that. So kind of just an on-base job. Mm -hmm. Almost immediately, he was not very well liked by his fellow servicemen.
0: I could see that. I mean, he gives the appearance and the I guess the vibe of kind of a douche.
1: Yep. He uh, spoke in his posh accent and acted high and mighty, which led to the other military men employing nicknames like the Duke or <laughs> the Count in mm. an effort to mock Gordy for his attitude. <laughs> That's awesome. Yep. Almost immediately. <laughs> Uh, But someone apparently had a thing for little Gordy C because within a year of joining the armed services, he met and married a woman named Marjorie Stevens. She was a theater assistant in the West End of London and apparently a doting wife when she was married to Gordy, but we really don't know anything about this woman. So,
0: gosh, just got married. That's the, when you find out that these people are married and like have healthy relationships, uh, I guess we don't really know their relationship too much. It wasn't healthy. Never mind. As we'll I take, find out. I take everything back.
1: <laughs> but I mean, to your point about them getting married, like they just got you. Got to lower your standards a little bit. <laughs> you right. can do anything you want, pretty much. So, sure. but yeah, he. Uh, it's these. This consecutive line of decisions that he makes is is very interesting to me because I don't know if all of it is a cover. If part of it's a cover, if none of it's a cover, and Mm -hmm. it just worked that way in the end. But yeah, him getting married and just kind of stepping aside from that flirting, womanizing way, it's kind of weird. Mm -hmm. Uh, But after he got married, Gordy's job as a flight rigger meant that he had to be on the move quite a bit, and he rarely spent any time at home with his wife. Oh, look at that. The uh, only time that he was said to spend at home with her was when he needed money. Very odd. Uh, so if he needed money, he'd go back home and she would give him money and then he would leave. And instead of going to study, like he told his wife he was going to do, he headed straight to the pubs to
0: spend that money. <laughs> he needed some beer cash, some concession stand money.
1: Uh, his fellow servicemen even reported later that Gordy would tell them that going home to see his wife was a chore.
0: Boo. So not a healthy relationship. Ooh, <laughs> Not healthy.
1: Uh, But not long after, 1939 sprung the beginning of World War II and thus the beginning of the blackouts and the lockdowns in London. Once again, as I mentioned earlier, London was a dangerous place. 20,000 people may have died from the bombings, but it was said that around the same number were said to have been killed in
0: road accidents because of the blackouts. Oh, yeah, you can't see. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah.
1: and I, I listened to a little bit about a German guy who used the blackouts as a way to hide his crimes too, and people, they had blackouts on the train platforms, so people would just literally be struck by trains all the time. Oh, So stuff like that you don't think about, but it adds to the total of just devastation everywhere.
0: Yeah, that is crazy. So many people probably just got pushed. Yeah. The serial pusher.
1: Yeah, that's what he did. He would just assault people on trains and then throw them off the train. (laughs) So he, yeah, scary. But whether the number in London is accurate or not, that another 20,000 were killed in road accidents, is whether it's accurate or not, it just goes to show that how much danger was present Mm -hmm. at all times, the fact that that's even plausible.
0: Right. It is literally right around the corner.
1: So during the early years of the war, Gordy C. was spending his time amassing flight hours outside of London in order to become part of the Royal Air Force Receiving Center and also just to become an official pilot for the Royal Air Force. So when he was tasked with returning to London to be part of that receiving center, it was a lot different than when he had last been there. It had been probably three, four years since he had last been in London, and when he came back, buildings were destroyed, hundreds of thousands were homeless, and a ton of people were inhabiting these air raid shelters to avoid Mm -hmm. just the sketchy and possibly deadly London streets. In that atmosphere, Little Gordy C. decided that it was time for him to add to the violence.
0: Time for him to leave
1: a little sprinkle. And if you think that me calling him Little Gordy C. is disrespectful to the case... I do, I in my opinion I'm doing it because that's how I view him. Mm-hmm. I view him as this little child man who just acts out on any impulse he has. Like he's not a cunning monster or anything. He's just a child who when he someone says no to him, he acts out.
0: 100% and he also portrays like another childish characteristic is that he's portraying like being an aristocrat. Like he's talking in a different voice. He's literally saying that he's someone that he isn't. He's 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 doing pretend. He's playing in his castle of blocks. Yes. Like like he's definitely a child.
1: That's how I view him. So I'm not calling him that to like minimize how dangerous and how evil he was. Right. I'm doing it to make fun of him. Yes. Because that's how he is to me. On the cold morning of February 9th, 1942, a call was made to the police when a body was found outside of an air raid shelter. The woman was found by an electrician on his way to work, and he found her in the gutter off of Montague Street. Uh, According to one very British man, she was found with her bloomers on and her possessions scattered about. Oh yeah,
0: very British. He also cleaned off his monocle while saying that.
1: It's very interesting listening to British true crime documentaries because they do have the true crime voice, but it's in a British accent. (laughs) Oh it's hard to take it seriously. Oh no. Because like here you get like, and she (laughs) was murdered by
0: her longtime boyfriend. And over there you get and she was murdered. (laughs) So am I watching National Geographic? (laughs) Is this planet Earth?
1: But the police were alerted very quickly upon finding this scene, and they responded quickly and came to the conclusion that her body had not been interfered with, and it was a simple case of robbery gone wrong. But soon after examining the scene, the Scotland Yard was called. The man that they called was named Frederick Sherrill. He was the Yard's detective superintendent and was known as the fingerprint man since he had helped originate the fingerprint
0: system that was used by the scotland yard there's only two ways that nickname like plays it's either you're this man who advanced the fingerprint uh expertise if you will the field if you will to help identify criminals or you are a criminal that collects fingertips or fingerprints. That could go two ways, yes. Like, there's only two ways about it. Good thing this guy, he went the super cop route. This guys
1: he's an Mm all-star as far as this case goes. He does everything in his power to make sure that this case is solved. Yeah. In addition to being a handwriting expert, Cheryl is said to have been able to recognize a fingerprint as easily as he could recognize a face. And that is going to be one of the main reasons why this case is solved. Cheryl quickly discovered the telltale signs of strangulation upon the body of the woman. And from these marks, he was also able to determine that the killer was most likely Mm left-handed. There was no outright signs of sexual assault, but one of her breasts was exposed and her clothing was torn. Uh, the evidence was all swabbed for prints, but unfortunately, this first crime scene provided no fingerprints other than the victims. Despite fingerprinting still being somewhat of an early science, Cheryl was one of the best, probably in the world, when it came to using it to track criminals. And by this point, the police had thousands of prints on file that were organized. The way they did it is kind of cool. They they showed it in one of the documentaries that they organized it by. They said there's two kind of common fingerprint traits there's like loops and there's i don't remember but if you look at each fingerprint they have a certain set of those markers and so you can designate them into categories so that way if you find a fingerprint you're not just searching through every single one you can search through a certain section of them oh thank god so it's (laughs) yeah before computers it was a lot like, you had to manually look.
0: Yeah, so. before computers and, like, the CSI-type shows where they just have a magical database of everyone's yeah, fingerprints. exactly. It, there, was some, uh, there was some grinding to do.
1: Yes, definitely. So, it's it's very cool that just seeing how all of this was done so in the past. I mean, 80 years ago. but mm-hmm. But naturally, all of that information was useless if they didn't have a fingerprint from the killer. And even if they did have that... There's no way to say that he would even have his prints on file for a previous incident in the first place, because the reason that they had most of the fingerprints was previous crimes. So if he wasn't on file, no reason to have it. In addition to finding that the killer was left handed, detectives were also able to conclude that the woman may have been dragged into the gutter from another location because her shoes were scuffed. When I first heard that, I thought like, maybe that's it or maybe like he literally was just holding her in the air as he strangled her so right who knows but the next day the police returned to the area with where they found the woman with a photo of her that they took at the morgue and canvassed door to door until a boarding house lady recognized the woman as 40 year old evelyn hamilton so they finally figured out who it was because they had no idea
0: i mean even that Like, not being able to get a picture off of, like, social media or, like, the internet. Like, here's a dead person. Do you recognize this black and white photo of a dead person? Uh,
1: From from the morgue. From the morgue. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, a body looks pretty different, like, after a short period of time. So, if, if they didn't get a picture right away... Who knows what she would have looked like comparatively to when she was alive. Right, right. Like that's what, I don't know if you know the case of the Somerton man in Australia. Mm -hmm. No. Just this guy that they kind of found on a beach and no one knew who he was, but they tried to put together a death mask for him to see what he would look like prior to when they found him because he looked so much more bloated and different. Yeah. So it's crazy how quickly your body
0: gives out after you die. (laughs) The body really is like, the heart stops, I'm out. I'm out of here. Going on vacation. So 40-year-old Evelyn
1: Hamilton was a local chemist who was in the area to apparently take a train to the next town and kind of relocate the next morning. But unfortunately, Gordon Cummins decided that she would never get on that train. And he wasn't going to stop there. The next evening, Gordy and his buddy from the Royal Air Force took their leave from the base and went into the town to stop at the pub. After drinking for a while, both of the men decided that they wanted to go pick up some prostitutes. At the time, prostitutes were nicknamed Piccadilly Commandos uh, because they were so prevalent during the war. They had an easy time finding work during the war with the large influx of military men stationed nearby. And at this time, street prostitution wasn't illegal, so the women were able to find their clients more or less out in the open.
0: Yeah, and I mean a ton of just your regular people, your regular women turn to it because you know they're homeless, like they have exactly. You have to make money, like there's no option. There's right. no other option.
1: And for it not being illegal, that's kind of it's a good thing for these prostitutes. It's a little bit of added protection. Like you're not going to get cracked down on by police, but also it's just a very dangerous time period to do this kind of work. You're already working somewhat in the shadows and now it's during literal blackouts.
0: Yeah. You're not working with the best people.
1: Yeah. Like I said, the police were not really concerned with prostitution. They were more concerned with the violent or capital crimes like looting. So prostitution wasn't high on their list. After paying anywhere from one to three pounds, people who picked up these prostitutes could find a place either in public or like out of the way, or perhaps these women would take them back to their flats and kind of do the business there. And that's what happened for Little Gordy C on that night. After being taken back to the woman's flat, Little Gordy couldn't get his other Little Gordy up and running because he was too drunk. So the two (laughs) supposedly just talked in her apartment, and then he returned back with her to the spot they had met. They shook hands and he left.
0: That's that was really wild (laughs) his little Gordy C. But just out of curiosity, I had to look up what three pounds would be today. Be 159 pounds. Good money, it's pretty good money for.
1: So, I mean but like you said, they needed to they do won't. anything. Yeah, absolutely. Like if you're not working in the factories, this is an alternative. Mm. And it's very sad too. like one of the victims, I don't remember which one, but it was said that she just did it because she was lonely no. <laughs> and ended up meeting this guy. So Jeez. yeah, it's very tragic. So after he shook hands with his original prostitute, he decided that he was going to go out and find another one. And as his friend waited, he did find another one and went home with her. But this time, the meeting wouldn't end so amicably. Evelyn Oatley, who was a farmer's wife who wanted more out of life, turned to sex work to pursue her goals. She kind of wanted to be either a dancer or an actress. So when she picked up little Gordy, they returned back to her flat to do business. When she brought men back, she had a tradition of just turning the radio on to kind of hide the sounds of her work, but that night, the neighbors reported that the radio was turned up even louder than normal. What they'd come to find out is that it probably wasn't hiding the sounds of sex, but rather murder. On Tuesday, February 10th, not 24 hours since reporting the first murder, Cheryl was called to the second crime scene. Upon arriving, he found a much more grisly discovery than for the first one. This time, the killer had not been able to strangle his victim. Instead, he cut her throat after attempting to choke the life from her. While she died, he burnt her thighs and other body parts with a curling iron and further mutilated her with a can opener. To add more insult to her fatal injuries, he sexually violated her with a flashlight and then left the tools he had used lying on the bed. According to one report, a five foot streak of blood was left on the apartment floor leading back to the bed where Evelyn's body was laid diagonally.
0: Yeah. I mean, the God, like the research, like realizing how gruesome this man treated his victims while they were still alive, the torture of it all, it's mind boggling.
1: Yeah. And it's clear from, well, one, he escalates real fast.
0: I don't know. if The fastest, to be the, quite frank. The
1: thing with that, though, is I don't know if he wanted to do something like this for the first one, and it was just too out in the open for him to have time to do it, and now that he was in an apartment, he just had time to do it, uh, or if he just decided, I'm going to go way further. Yeah. But it also just shows an apparent strong hatred for women. Like...
0: For sure. Some
1: sort of rage behind it.
0: The biggest... The most hatred of women.
1: Yeah. After securing and logging the crime scene, Cheryl took the implements of torture that were laid on the bed back to the station to see if he could get any clues from them. And as of now, the two murders were seemingly unrelated. The first was a robbery gone wrong that ended in the strangling of a woman. The second was a crime of intense passion and hatred towards women, with perhaps a sexual angle as well. But just as the police were dead in the water, Cheryl finally noticed something. The killer had left a fingerprint on the can opener used during the second murder. When he examined it more closely, it revealed that whoever had committed the second murder was also left-handed. So we have a pattern. We do. That's the only connection right now, though. That, like, well, some sources that I found said that there was similar wounds sustained by both the first and second victims, but it seems to me... Like, the first one was way more tame, I guess you could call it,
0: than the second one. Yeah, I mean, I would say by far.
1: Yeah, because the second one is very brutal and prolonged. Yeah. Um, so, I think that at this point, linking the two killings together is a bit of a long shot, since they only had that one clue that he was a lefty. But at the same time, only 8% of the population at this time was left-handed. So, I guess it's not too crazy to say that it was the same
0: person. Did you say 8%? Yeah. Oh my God. That's that, actually kind of that's one.
1: That's a stat that I heard in one of the things that I had read or one right. of the
0: documentaries. But it's also like not enough to go on for like an indictment. Exactly.
1: But apparently they saw enough that was sure. there to say this was probably the same guy. Mm-hmm. But regardless of whether this was a long shot or not, Cheryl and his partner, Sydney Birch, put both murders under the same umbrella. They were looking for one person. The next step was to attempt to match the fingerprints that they had found on the can opener to some 750,000 fingerprints in the Scotland Yards database. Wow, (laughs) so many. Uh, Hope soon began to dwindle for the detectives as they realized that the fingerprint didn't match any of the ones that they had on file. But for Gordy C, things were going just as he had hoped. The first two murders had gone off without a hitch. The blackouts and the strained police force were pretty much his best friend at this point, it seemed. The press also hadn't picked up on the story yet. So Gordy
0: thought, why quit while I'm ahead? He was probably just so shocked. Like after the first one, like that, that worked. And then the second one, he's like, that, that, one, that, that one worked. worked?
1: Yeah. While out on Wednesday, February 11th, Gordy met a woman named Margaret Lowe. She was known as The Lady by her fellow women of the night because she dressed more conservatively and spoke in a more refined manner than most women in that line of work. Uh, The two of them went back to Margaret's place and were heard by the neighbors when they arrived, so they know that they came back together. And Reports say that Gordy left less than a half hour later. The next day, the postman was unable to deliver a package to Margaret, so he left it outside of her door, where mail began to pile up for a few days before she was discovered. So at this point, no one really even knows that she's dead. Yeah. The next night, Thursday, February 12th, Gordy was out and about again. It's one thing you need to know about this guy. He drank a lot. Yeah, he was getting after it. Granted, he's 27, so I mean... I drink a lot, but not like this guy.
0: No, like, you also don't go on killings. That's,
1: yes, that you can prove. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this guy's out every single night, and he's visiting women of the night right. every single night.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Ew. While at a pub, he caught eyes with a woman who was sitting by herself. Her name was Mary Hayward, and while she was waiting for a date, Gordy C sat and began to talk with her. And this is where I say that he must have been charming, because he convinced Mary to go across the street with him for a drink instead of waiting for her date.
0: You have to hate the man, but you have to say,
1: he has some moves. He's got game, I guess. Yeah. So, when they were drinking across the street, Gordy C. propositioned Mary for paid sex. And she got very angry at this proposition and wanted to leave. But, good good reason. (laughs) While they were getting ready to leave, Mary decided that she was going to give Gordy her name and phone number on a piece of paper. So she did that, and then she asked him to accompany her on her walk through the blacked out streets, because logically thinking, having a man around as you walked through the dark alleyways was a safer option.
0: Right, she was just thinking, he's just kind of a perv. But she was wrong.
1: On the way through a dark alley, Gordy C. got aggressive with Mary and attempted to kiss her and put his hands up her skirt. When she pushed him away, Gordy got mad and wrapped his hands around her throat and pushed her up against the wall. For Mary's remembrance of the event, Gordy seemed to slip into a trance-like state while he choked her, repeating a single phrase. You won't. You won't. You won't. As Mary slipped into unconsciousness, an 18-year-old night porter was passing by when he noticed the flash of a flashlight, or as British people call it, electric torch. When he heard the sound of a struggle, he approached the scene where Gordy was in the process of his third murder, and not wanting to be caught, Gordy abandoned Mary and ran away. This passerby saved Mary's life. Yeah,
0: thank God this guy was coming through.
1: Yeah. But in his haste to escape, little Gordy C. had left behind something important. His Royal
0: Air Force-issued gas mask. Like That was the craziest thing to leave behind. Yeah. An entire gas mask. How do you not notice that? Like a a gas mask. A full
1: rucksack thing full of a gas mask. Of
0: gas mask. (laughs) Do you want me to say gas mask one more time? Gas mask. (laughs) Gas mask.
1: Almost immediately, Mary reported her attack to the police. Thank God. Yes. She took the gas mask in its carrying bag to the station with her, and upon inspecting the bag, the police quickly realized that it was a Royal Air Force regimental-issued gas mask. The police called the RAF military police, who then traced the number on the mask back to Gordon Frederick Cummins. But that didn't mean the blackout ripper was done just yet. After fleeing the scene of the last assault, Gordy met a prostitute named Catherine Mulcahy in Piccadilly. The two traveled back to Catherine's flat to complete their transaction, but once inside, Gordy attacked her. Not one to be done in so easily, Catherine fought back and was able to escape from Cummins and ran to the neighbors in the nude. Gordy followed her and the whole time apologized for his behavior. In what is kind of a type of peace offering, I guess, Gordy just threw eight one-pound notes on the ground and kind
0: of just left. That's the craziest part. Like, sorry for the almost murder. Here's an eight spot. <laughs> I'm Yeah, I can't imagine just being like, sorry I acted
1: that way. Sorry I acted that way. You're running naked to your neighbor's house to get away from me. Screaming. Here's some money. Yeah. But this just meant that his bloodlust had been interrupted not once, but twice in the same night. He felt like he was on a cold streak, And he would not allow that to be three times. Little Gordy C. attempted to do business with the prostitute after leaving Catherine's flat. But this woman said that she got a bad feeling about the airman, and he... Was denied. Shortly thereafter, 32 year old Doris Genet was just seen walking down the same street as the original woman that Gordy approached. He went up to her after being denied by the first woman, and after arriving back at Doris's flat, the Ripper went about his grim task of ending her life. But as with Margaret Lowe, she wasn't going to be found until Gordy was already in custody. As Cheryl and Birch were working on finding a match for their fingerprints, the Royal Air Force was waiting for Gordon Cummins to return from his night out so that they could question him about the gas mask that was brought in by Mary Haywood. When he arrived, they immediately summoned him to explain. Not phased, Gordy had an excuse. He claimed that he must have grabbed the wrong mask by mistake, and someone else had taken his in return. It wasn't him. Can you imagine
0: that in his little posh, like, fake Oxford accent? Oh, my
1: gosh. That's so... When you already want to punch this guy in the
0: face. Yeah.
1: But thankfully, the police didn't buy it. They were ready to take him into custody for the assault on Mary Haywood. At the same time, Catherine Mulcahy was reporting her assault to the police as well. She had kept the one-pound notes that Gordy had left at her feet... And the Royal Air Force organized all the men who had been paid recently and were able to distinguish that the money had come from Gordon Frederick Cummins' pay packet. Mm. Combined with the gas mask, they had enough evidence and arrested little Gordy C. Yep, that'll do it. Just as Cummins was being investigated by the police, the bodies of Margaret Lowe and Doris chenet were discovered within hours of one another. Both women were found strangled to death by their own stockings. Margaret Lowe, according to a YouTube comment from a family member, which is absolutely wild to see, was essentially found by her daughter, Barbara. Margaret usually left a key on a string behind the mail slot, which would allow her daughter to get inside if she wasn't home. But the key wasn't there. In addition to the pile of mail sitting outside the door, Barbara got concerned and went to the neighborhood shop. The shop owner returned to the flat with Barbara, and the police were called shortly after. They were able to gain access to the residence where they discovered Margaret's body. In addition to strangling her, Cummins had gone berserk with mutilation. He had cut deeply into the flesh on her thighs. Her abdomen had been ripped open, exposing her internal organs. A candlestick had been used to sexually violate her body. And Doris, when she was discovered by her husband, was found to have sustained basically the same injuries. The tools he used to complete his work were all taken from inside of the houses where they were found and once again left beside the bodies at the crime scene.
0: Man, so when you hear stories like this, it just always makes me think, how did we get to be like the premier uh, species on this planet? Right. (laughs) Like that was a mistake. Yeah, a little too much agency, I think. Oh my god, (laughs) like that is just so horrifying. Like a deer would never do that. <laughs> that's you don't know that. Yeah. Yeah, but that is just like you you can't hear that and not just like twinge a little bit, right? Cringe a little bit. It's just absolutely horrifying. And to be discovered by your daughter or your husband or just by loved ones, like that's imagery that they'll never unsee. And it's it's just un un unreal. Right. I I hope for the daughter's
1: sake that she didn't actually go in to see what was going on, and the right. police found the body and just kind of kept her at bay, but yeah, the husband was like, "The table's still set from dinner yesterday. Why is this still out here mm-hmm. and so he called the police and he's like, "Yeah, so it's rough uh these two especially are they gruesome it, yeah, yeah it it's where he gets the ripper correlation from mm-hmm. he, he like the exposed intestines stuff like that, and that's why i Said earlier that maybe the fact that he was in their flats and had the privacy Mm -hmm. gave him the the freedom to do stuff like this because that's what the theory is with Jack the Ripper. His last murder was in an apartment. Most of them were on the street, but the last one was in an apartment. It was much more brutal and much more thorough. Mm -hmm. So just you just had the time and privacy. So maybe just let you run more wild.
0: Yeah, I mean when you know you're going to be able to get away with it. I mean he's had practice at this point too. Yeah, so. He's getting bolder, too. getting bolder, more brutal. After these discoveries, back at base, the water
1: in the pot was going from a simmer to a boil for Little Gordy C. During their investigation, police had found items belonging to some of the victims, such as a fountain pen belonging to Doris Jonet and a cigarette case belonging to Evelyn Oatley, which contained a picture of her inside the, the case. Now that the police knew that, not only did they capture a man who was guilty of assault but they captured a multiple murderer. On the 17th of February, a day before Little Gordy C. turned 28, he was brought before the police court and charged with the murder of Evelyn Oatley. Now, this might sound weird that he's just charged for the one, but he was only charged on the one because they knew if they charged him all four and he didn't get convicted, they wouldn't be able to charge him again. Mm -hmm. So, if they only charged him for the one, they could keep all of the others as backup. Very smart S- prosecuting. Smart police work. Mm-hmm. When Detective Cheryl took his fingerprints, he noticed that he did so with his left hand. Mm. Throughout the next couple of months, Cummins denied any involvement with the crimes and pled not guilty on all counts. But with the personal belongings, the suspicious actions he had taken, and the fact that his fingerprints were able to be matched to those found at the crime scenes, the jury only took 35 minutes to find Gordon Frederick Cummins guilty of the murder of Evelyn Oatley. That almost has to be a record like very 35 f- very fast. Yeah. April 28th was the day that the Blackout Ripper was sentenced to death. Cummins launched an appeal which was very roundly rejected. Two months later, on June 25th, little Gordy C. was marched out of his cell after writing a letter to his wife, stationed at the gallows, and hanged to death as the air raid
0: sirens blared overhead. That's crazy timing. Very ironic. Did a bomb land squarely on him just for like due diligence? Like, make sure he's dead.
1: Yeah, it would have like been the frosting on the cake of actually catching mm-hmm. this guy.
0: But it's interesting. Um, when he was sentenced to death... There was actually quite a large campaign by his family. Yep, to get it to more stop than, and to get it like overruled. There are still people that will say that he's probably not the guy that did it. Interesting. Like there's a there's a
1: very big campaign saying that he was innocent.
0: Well, I mean Bundy had groupies.
1: Oh so yeah. <laughs> like, and I mean they rushed like his whole situation was pretty fast. Right. Caught in February, sentenced in April hung by june
0: yep so done and done
1: you would like that's a very quick succession of events that leads to a lot of people saying they just wanted to e- expedite the process right. to get a person on file they and wanted to the head to close roll. it yeah but the murders also stopped so <laughs> like right yeah unless he just got scared right but it doesn't seem like this guy's a guy that would get scared just because of this
0: it's like why is the water not running anymore because there's a dam right Right,
1: exactly to the end cummins denied his direct involvement with the murders in the letter to his wife that he wrote on the day of his execution he claimed that he blacked out and doesn't remember what he had done but that he must be guilty because they said he was since he never confessed we have no real way to know why he chose this path in life A lot of people kind of just believe that since there was so much death and chaos present during the war, it kind of gave him a license to indulge on his baser impulses.
0: Right. It's happening at other places. It's fine if I do it here.
1: It's a perfect cover. Mm -hmm. In addition, human nature just kind of tends to spike towards extremes during time periods of intense devastation. And if Cummins believed that he was going to die anyways, he may have seen no reason to hold himself back. Right. While much of his early life didn't point towards the life of a serial or a spree murderer, some of his later actions might. Similar to Jeffrey Dahmer, Cummins was a raging alcoholic and was almost always intoxicated, especially during his acts. Similar to many serial killers, Cummins felt the need to lie about his life, to look better for people and lead them to view him in a certain way. Similar to another ripper, Peter Sutcliffe, who we've also covered on this podcast, He got married, but stepped out and still saw prostitutes regularly. But unlike many of these people, he had an open avenue to kill anonymously. Blackouts in a war kind of help with that. So perhaps he just snapped. Maybe there was hatred and rage towards women building up for a long time. Alcohol combined with rejection can kind of lead towards violent outbursts, so perhaps he killed for the first time on accident and loved the rush it gave him, and he just kind of continued with it. Whatever the reason was, Gordon Frederick Cummins decided to end the lives of four innocent women, with even more narrowly escaping. And for that, he is a total and complete piece of human garbage.
0: Absolutely. Toss him in the landfill. Like, what a terrible human. Yeah. Like, genuinely awful. I just... It's... I
1: literally... I was trying to think of so many different possibilities, like, what could have been the factor that led him to this? And I just, I don't think just being in a military during a, war, a world war, I don't think that's just going to change a person to do something like this. There had to be something bubbling up the whole time. There had
0: to be some traumatic event yeah. that happens. I mean, he, when you mentioned that, he constantly, I'm assuming constantly said like the, you won't stuff like that has to be something like the You won't, you yeah. won't like that has to be something. And it really wasn't his childhood. It could very well be like one of his early sexual experiences, like where he was embarrassed and decided to take that humiliation that he may have felt and put it onto someone else. Yeah. Towards you know, towards women. Or you hear of some serial killers who end up
1: contracting a an STD from a sex worker. Right. And then they blame them for all of their misfortunes. And then that just grows into a vast hatred and then goes from there into murder
0: really snowballs
1: who knows like like i said this guy never confessed we only had him for four months after they got caught after he got caught so never really said anything and i guess it's we'll never really know his motivation behind what he did but either way what he did is inexcusable and absolutely atrocious so
0: that is interesting that was so fast because i mean serial killers usually do eventually talk like they want to claim their crimes, they yeah. want the credit, if you will. So f- that part of why I'm sure he may not be as known could very well be because it was such a quick process.
1: Yeah, I don't know. And it's kind of interesting. Like I haven't studied a lot of spree killers, like where mm-hmm. it's these quick succession guys, but it seems like a lot of them never own up to their crimes or they kill themselves or mm. are killed before they really even have a chance to talk about it. So, I don't, it's kind of different than serial killers. I don't know if serial killers just get complacent and mm-hmm. like normalize it so much that they just are open about it, mm-hmm. or if they're just that egotistical by the end that they've stayed alive for so long doing what they were doing. And then spree killers are just like, I just wanted to blow my load all at once and get it over with. And then
0: I want to be done. Right. And then they're like, that was me.
1: Yeah. Or this guy, I I don't know. It, this guy also could have just been like so blackout that he just went into fugue states, and just like every time that impulse hit, he just like lit, literally
0: did blackout. What kind of alcohol? Like what amount I, of alcohol? No man. Like, <laughs> but
1: I don't think that really tracks either, because like that one instance, he picked up a prostitute, mm-hmm. did his thing with her, took her back to the street, shook her hand, and left. Right. He didn't go back to the bar, so he was already as drunk as he was going to be at that point of the night. I don't know. That doesn't track then. No. So I think this guy's just fucked up.
0: Yeah. And <laughs> of course we will never know.
1: Nope. We're not psychologists. Nope. We're barely histo- we're barely history fans.
0: Yeah. <laughs> 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 right. All right. But if you want to continue the conversation with us, you can follow us and talk to us on any of our social medias. You can find us on X at gems underscore history. Jacob by Jacob from Wisco, myself at what you can also find us on Patreon, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, and Facebook. Just search Gems of History Podcast and you'll be able to find us.
1: I had to do those like the past two weeks. <laughs> I Pretty was, like, tough, huh? I was like, I haven't done this in literal months.
0: <laughs> yep. So, yeah. You yeah. just have to get like the rhythm of it. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I, I always want to call it Twitter because. I literally pull it up every single time yep. and I see X. Like yep. I just, I just never will
1: not know as Twitter. So. Yep. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you guys want to send in your stories, we are doing that episode next week, so you have a little bit of time left. We will be recording probably a few days after this episode drops for that episode. So if you want to send them in, and you don't have a lot of time. But you do have time. You can send them to our email, gemsofhistorypodcast at gmail.com. If you want to send us those stories, just put scary story or something similar in the headline. And yeah, we will read them on the air. Just let us know if you want to be anonymous in the story and we will not say your name. But other than that, I think that's all we got. Yeah. We're on on our way to Halloween, buddy boy. Ooh. Ooh, spooky. All right. We will not be talking about a f- super gruesome serial killer next week because we're going to yeah. do creepypasta and listener stories. So yes, we'll, get, we'll get scary and then we'll also read creepypasta, yeah. which depending on what you read is not scary. It depends <laughs> so, on how creepy your pasta is. Yes. So, So be ready for that, guys. All right. Everyone have a great week. Hopefully you guys are all doing well out there, taking care of yourselves. We love you. Thank you for listening and stay polished.